This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I started this podcast six years ago to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be in therapy and really enjoying learning more about psychological and emotional issues, to those of you who might just have been diagnosed or maybe you're having a relationship problem that you're struggling with, but also to those of you who might really be skeptical about therapy and especially therapists and not quite know whether or not you think it's a bunch of baloney. So I'm here to help you with that decision, (laughs) and you can let me know what you think. But I'm glad all of you are here. It's February, and a month that for some is dreaded because right in the middle of it is Valentine's Day. I wasn't sure if it was celebrated worldwide, so I looked it up. In the United Kingdom, anonymous Valentines are sent, dating back to the Victorian era. There's a St. Dwinnan's Day that's celebrated in Wales on January the 25th, where the gift is a hand-carved wooden spoon, which is, to me, a lot more pragmatic than a box of candy, frankly. In Japan, women make the moves and give gifts of specially made chocolate. And in Finland and Estonia, friends and significant others are celebrated, a practice I think myself is great. In fact, I think it's so great that next week we're featuring an interview with author Marissa Franco, whose new book, Celebrating the Depth and Meaning of Friendships, is called Platonic and was chosen as one of the best books in 2022. So maybe our discussion next week will also help you rethink about how you're going to celebrate Valentine's Day and who you're going to celebrate. Seeming coincidences happen to me often, and again, this week it happened. Something very synergistic got my attention. First, I listened to the Invisibilia podcast, one of my favorites, where they actually featured another NPR podcast because they're on a break, a show called Life Kit. A Dr. Amir Levine was interviewed, who's an expert on attachment theory, and he spoke on how your attachment style can help and or hinder you from being able to achieve emotional intimacy. At the same time, I received a deeply thought out question in an email from a listener who was trying to figure out how her identification with perfectly hidden depression and a struggle with intimacy were connected. She stated that she had what's called an anxious avoidant attachment style. So that pointed me to this very episode you're going to hear today as we focus in February on relationships. So today we're going to go over the basics of attachment styles. There are four of them. What are they? Attachment styles are begun in your childhood and they have to do with what you seek in relationship as an adult, what you're comfortable or secure with and what you're not. And as always... We're going to talk about how your own attachment style interacts with potential partners and what you can do about it. And also, there's a link in the show to a questionnaire that's free and you can determine what your own attachment style is currently. I hope you have some fun with that. The featured email questions for today are also about perfectly hidden depression. One is how to talk about it with a therapist that you're beginning to see. And the second, the listener asked the question, how do I know if my work on it is making a difference? Really great questions. So let's start this episode with this email from a listener, and I quote, I've been listening to your podcast for some time now, and I've always appreciated the counsel on topics like enmeshment, anxiety, and family trauma. 
While I heard you talk about perfectly hidden depression often, I didn't think it applied to me. Quite on brand for someone who experiences PhD, no. (laughs) Finally, in work with my individual therapist, I'm exploring this concept for myself, and the book has been a huge help, mostly to not feel alone in this experience. I wanted to ask about one piece of the book, emotional intimacy. I turned 30 this year, and I've never had a real romantic relationship, even though sometimes it feels like it's the thing I want most in life, partnership, companionship, and support. Now that I've taken time to understand my family enmeshment and set boundaries, I figured this piece would solve itself, but it hasn't. I have incredibly close friendships, but I've never had a partner, and the older I get, the more it makes me feel unwanted, unworthy, and hopeless. When you talk about emotional intimacy in the book, it often comes from a perspective of having the relationship, but not being totally vulnerable or honest within them. What about those of us who become anxious avoidant, but wanting to change? If you could point me in the direction of an existing episode, or if you'd care to cover this on an upcoming one, I'd be very interested. Thanks so much for all you do. First of all, and I hope I say this enough to y'all, thank you for reaching out. It's so interesting to me that when I read descriptions about self-work, when it's being recognized on some list or another, which of course is always nice, they always talk about the fact that it's based on questions y'all send in, and I love that. So in this case, this listener is right. In the book, I didn't address attachment at all, but started instead in the relationship chapter describing the relationships that someone identifying with perfectly hidden depression might be attracted to and why, but really nothing about attachment. So let's do that today. Attachment issues have recently become much more of a focus, almost like it's a new thing, but the theory itself is far from new. Dr. Levine talked about how a man named John Bowlby disagreed with what was the commonly held belief in the 50s and early 60s, that infants only needed food and shelter and they'd survive very well. He was stressing that survival was, of course, a goal, but feeling safe, attached, and connected to the caregiver in a secure way was also necessary. Mary Ainsworth was his research colleague, and their work changed everything. Now, before you think, oh no, you mean if I wasn't parented well or parented much at all, if I was neglected or abused, then I'm doomed to never find a good relationship? No, not at all. Let's do something first. I'm going to suggest that before you listen to the episode, you stop and click the link in the show notes. That's a quiz on identifying your own attachment style. So click the link in the show notes. While you're doing that, let's hear from BetterHelp, where you might find a therapist that can help you become even more aware of your attachment and style. Twenty twenty two is ending, which was a hard year for many, as they're trying to heal from the impact of the pandemic, and now we're welcoming twenty twenty three with more people than ever needing help with anxiety and depression. The most common problem I hear from those seeking therapy is how hard it is to find a therapist. BetterHelp solves those problems. After you make the first contact, their standard is to offer names of therapists to you in less than two days, and you can talk to them in a first session to see if it's a good fit. If so, you're on your way. But if not, rather than going through an awkward call or email, you simply let BetterHelp know, and they'll ask what it was you didn't like and find someone else for you. You can text, chat, or talk virtually. All of those avenues are open to you. I'm a therapist because I got good therapy. I know how much of a difference it can make. I reached out, and so can you. Here's BetterHelp's offer for self-work listeners. 10% off your first month of sessions if you use this link. 
betterhelp.com slash selfwork. There's never a better time than today to reach out and get help. Betterhelp.com slash selfwork. Okay, now you've taken the quiz and you can see how you rank. And the explanations of the three basic styles were there in full. Now you can see perhaps how your attachment style can affect your relationships now. Because the way we were cared for as children goes on to affect what we're seeking in others or what we fear or avoid. And Dr. Levine pointed out, it's not just our romantic relationships, but our friendships too. But it's most clear in relationships where intimacy is involved or expected. Also central to the science of attachment is the discovery that our need to be in a close relationship is embedded in our genes. So contrary to what many relationship experts today may tell us about the importance of remaining emotionally self-sufficient, attachment research shows us that our need to be close to our partner is essential. Let's briefly go over the different basic styles of attachment and what they mean. Anxious People or anxiously attached people are often preoccupied with their relationships and then tend to worry about their partner's ability to love them back. These children may have received attention from their parents, but it was likely spotty and inconsistent. So they feel connected for a while, but that connection can go away for no apparent reason. And of course, the children blame themselves, so their defense is to reach out, even cry out to make sure you're still there, and they'll do it as adults. These are the folks that are always texting to make sure you're thinking about them or you're there and want a response immediately. Avoidant attachment or avoidant people equate intimacy with a loss of independence and constantly try to minimize closeness. These were the children who were ignored. They weren't secure in what was about to come next. And I've often said to clients that children can come to believe that they don't need what's not provided. It's a way of defending themselves from fear. So if you didn't get attention and security, again, you can sort of convince yourself, although not necessarily emotionally, that you don't need it, and you begin to hide your despair or loneliness. You don't really know how to attach. Texting, for example, for these folks is just a task, and they'd rarely if ever maintain a steady stream of contact. It's just not who they are. Now, secure people feel comfortable with intimacy and are usually very warm and loving. They got what they needed consistently and often. So, basically, anxious attachment and avoided detachment are both based in insecurity, but it looks different. So, it may sound like that you're out of luck if you're anxious or avoidant, but that's not true. Actually, each of these styles also has their upside as well, a benefit, if you will. Let's talk about it. Anxiously attached people may be more sensitive and pay more attention to signals that are negative, things that are hurtful, whereas a securely attached person may brush those things off because they're so secure, they tend to not see what could really be going on. So sometimes that anxiety makes you a little more street smart. Avoidant folks may find it difficult to be close, but they may also be able to spot people who are manipulative. They may maintain more objectivity when they're assessing the future potential of a relationship. So that's kind of interesting too, isn't it? They can stay more rational. So what's a good way to use your understanding of your attachment style? First and foremost, simply be aware of it. That's it. Research shows that if you're aware 
if you know it and how you might automatically or habitually be responding to others, is one of the best ways to begin to alter that response. Let's take this example. Let's say you've always been a picky eater. So someone suggests a new kind of restaurant and you shudder and say, oh, no, I'd never go there. But if you realize, wait a minute, just because I'm a little picky doesn't mean that I don't want to try new things. Your awareness of what you do out of habit, what your rut is, if we want to call it that, can allow you to change. Now, what's the whole anxious avoidant category that the listener mentions? Let's go over what it is. Here's Mark Manson's work. He's so down to earth. I really like him. He says, anxious avoidant attachment types, also known as the fearful or disorganized type, bring together the worst of both worlds. Anxious avoidance are not only afraid of intimacy and commitment, but they distrust and lash out emotionally at anyone who tries to get close to them. Anxious avoidance often spend much of their time alone and miserable or in abusive or dysfunctional relationships. They are low in confidence and less likely to express emotion, preferring to suppress them. Those of you who know something about perfectly hidden oppression, this may sound somewhat familiar. However, they can have intense emotional outbursts when under stress. They blow. They also don't tend to seek help when in need due to distrust of others. This sucks because they're also incapable of sorting through their own issues. So they're very, very lonely. Or they're loners. Now, luckily, there are only a few folks in the world who might earn this label. There are many more anxious, avoidant, or secure people. But if you're one of them, you most likely have a history of trauma or abuse, and need to seek some help. You know, I've laughed frequently with my own patients and said that I've never felt healthier than when I wasn't in a relationship. So you put that statement into the attachment context, then this makes sense because my own attachment issues aren't getting in my way. But what do the experts say about trying to be in relationship and how that can affect your attachment style? And I think this is great news. And I realized this when I took the quiz. Your ability to feel more securely about attachment can change. It can be lowered by hurtful relationships, trauma, loss, bad stuff that happens, meaning you get less secure. But it can be increased by being in relationships with secure people who aren't perfect, but know how to interact with you, have their own sense of security, given your tendency to be needy or stay the hell away at times. They'll be patient and they'll be understanding because they're more secure. Again, awareness is the first key. And that can happen on not only an individual level, but between two people that are trying to work more on their own understanding of how their unique attachment styles might be addressed in a healthy way. First, realize that both of you will grow into more secure people if you show compassion toward your partner's struggles with attachment. Let's say one of you is anxious and the other avoidant which happens quite a lot, and sets up what's termed the approach avoidance communication, where one of you can't stand conflict and feel you have to resolve it right then. Does that sound familiar? That's the anxious one. And the other who feels uncomfortable with conflict and withdraws or refuses to talk about it. Stop making it a big deal. An anxious person can learn to take a few deep breaths and ask when their partner might be ready to talk. An avoidant person can realize that Not all conflict is bad, in fact, far from it, and try to calm down and consider their partner's point of view and tell them, okay, I'm not in a place to talk about it right now. Let's talk about it in an hour. 
Too often, we label each other. You're so needy. You don't seem to give a damn. That's our perception or misperception of their attachment style. So, of course, we put them down for it, right? So, let's get back to the listener's question. What might she do? Now, she told us that she'd been working on her family enmeshment and setting boundaries, which means that her family didn't have a lot of boundaries, and so she's gotten better at setting them. She thought maybe that would lead to her relationships getting better. And her work has probably changed the way she thinks about relationships. For example, she might realize that she really wants somebody who has their own life apart from her, rather than being all about her all the time. Now, we all go through that phase when we first fall in less love, don't get me wrong, but most healthy people have their own life going on as well. But the fact that she's never had an intimate relationship is notable. She has lots of great friends, and those are, of course, also important, but it's gone on so long now that she's feeling unwanted, unworthy, and hopeless. Now, I could pontificate about how she should feel, but I'm not going to do that. You know, loneliness can seep under your skin and convince you of whatever painful self-concept you might tend to have. I'm reminded of someone, in fact, I'd worked with many years ago, actually, as I was writing the book. Her life looked perfect on the outside, but she couldn't find a partner who she either wasn't bored with or simply couldn't feel much toward them. It wasn't until she worked through several traumas with me, a rape, being horribly bullied as a child in ballet class, and having binged and purged on a regular basis for many years, that she risked telling the next candidate, who she was dating, about who she really was, and what she'd both struggled with in the past and still does in the present. Her own self-acceptance, which is realizing that whatever you are ashamed of in your life doesn't define you any more than your strengths, helped her choose differently. She entered the relationship fully, not just trying to impress or be funny or cute or sexy. It was a huge risk, and she felt awkward and confused and scared in doing so. All she asked was that he be real with her. So it was her shame that had kept her lonely, and confronting it was crucial. It may be that this story is important for this listener to hear, because in her searching for an intimate partner, she may have been trying to, quote-unquote, put her best foot forward, and of course we all want to do that, And again, we all go through this lust-love period, but it's also important to begin to be transparent. And just because you've done some really great work in therapy doesn't mean you're not going to have some struggles. Now, if this listener is talking about that she's never risked at all, never even trying to be in a relationship, that could be another problem. A woman comes to mind that didn't marry until she was almost 40 who came to see me. What was revealed was a deep sense of self-hatred that had been part of her for as long as she could remember. We had to work on lots of compassion and reworking the words she used to describe herself and the inner severely critical voices she had in her head all the time. Maybe that's what she means when this listener says, your book has made me feel less alone, like I'm not alone in these problems. Now, if this listener is truly anxious avoidant, as we've described it, then there's bound to be real trauma in her past, maybe even more than enmeshment. So if that's the case, I'm glad she sought therapy, and I'm certainly honored that my own writings have helped her. So I'm hoping that clears it up at least a little bit, and you know more about the categories of attachment and how enmeshment may seem like a secure attachment, but actually it's very anxious because... You're not quite sure if you're ever giving enough, if you ever are enough, 
And so in other relationships, you may seek affirmation constantly. Am I enough? Am I enough? Am I enough? Something like that. Good luck to you, and let me know how you're doing. Our other featured emails today are also about perfectly hidden depression. Here's one. Hello, Dr. Margaret. I'm an American expat permanently residing in Ireland. I've just started therapy with a young therapist associated with the state medical system and thank the stars that we have one, with whom I have eight sessions. I was referred to him by my GP, who noticed I was at the end of my rope with a disabling medical condition. I have graduated from therapy several times in America, and I'm always described as the nice person who always takes people's feelings seriously. I'm accustomed to managing my thoughts with objectivity, so if people are noticing my control is slipping, I must truly be in a bad way. I guess this listener means that the GP has noticed that something's slipping. About an hour ago, I googled the phrase, I'm outstanding at hiding my anger, and your image of the 10 characteristics of perfectly hidden depression was literally the very first result. I read it and said to myself, Dr. Margaret has read my mind. Anyone who reads this list hardly needs to know anything else about me. So anyway, I decided that I should tell my therapist about this at my next session next Wednesday. But he is inexperienced, though smart, and mostly deals with Irish country people who are naive about their own feelings, let alone therapy techniques. I don't want to go through weeks of, have you considered taking time to relax, or have you tried mindfulness? And they laugh at that. I guess my question boils down to, in a few words, how can I place my therapist in a position to consider perfectly hidden depression as a thing that explains a lot about me? How would you want to have a client approach you with this? Thank you for your caring support. Here's part of my answer. It sounds as if you've already met once with your new therapist or perhaps know him. I'm a little confused there. I wouldn't be at all offended if someone said, this description I found on the internet fits me and I'd love for you to look at it. This is not something you'd say. I'm just saying this. The mental health profession is far too dependent on the official criteria for depression. And when someone comes in smiling and energetic, nice, as you say, caring toward others, then we mark off the possibility of underlying deep pain or trauma, or we can. And yet, there it can be, just hiding underneath the surface. I've also had people tell me, I'm going to find it hard to open up, but since we only have eight sessions, I'm going to do my best but I need a lot of control because of my issues. So basically what you want to do is say to him, you know, I've had a lot of therapy. I'm really interested in what our work is going to be like, but I wanted you to know this about me so that we could get a running start. Something like that. When I first moved to Northwest Arkansas, I actually worked in a community health facility where we were limited to six sessions. And I will tell you, I actually thought it sometimes helped. Because it made both of us focus on what were the things that were really likely to be malleable or to be able to change quickly or to be able to address quickly. And so we got a lot done in a little bit of time. I usually spaced those sessions out more rather than having them weekly. And I would give assignments and homework, etc. So I wouldn't be at all offended if someone walked in with a book someone else had written and said, if you read these paragraphs, they really describe me well. That wouldn't bother me at all. So I hope that it gets you two off to a great start. Here's our last question. I have read Perfectly Hidden Depression, and I'm trying to work my way through the tasks. I'm taking things fairly slowly. 
but I'm wondering how I can tell if what I'm doing is working how it's supposed to and what I can expect to feel during the process. So here's my answer. I'm also glad you're going slowly. So often those who struggle in this way rush things. So I'm impressed that you can ease into the changes that you might be trying to affect. What I hope in the end is that you feel relief, understanding, compassion toward yourself rather than constant inner ridicule and criticism, and much increased self-acceptance. What you're likely to feel prior to that, however, is confusion, anxiety, and even fear, which is why commitment is named as one of the stages of treatment. When you've lived your life following such stringent rules and expectations for yourself, then letting those slowly shift can be difficult. And of course, then there come the emotions that those stringent rules have tried to govern. Now, if there's trauma involved in your history, I definitely recommend doing this work with a therapist who's worked with trauma. It's simply too hard to do on your own. So be careful, but good luck and let me know how it goes. Thank you all very, very much for being here. I'm grateful to those of you who send in questions and comments via either AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com, my email, or through the SpeakPipe function, which is a way to leave me a voicemail right now. You can follow me on Instagram, Pinterest, wherever you want to follow me, and I'd be delighted to have you. I've never been particularly comfortable with the word follower. I think we're walking together, actually. My book is available anywhere you can buy books. Perfectly Hidden Depression is available in ebook, paperback, and audiobook. And I'd love to hear what your responses to the book are. I also have a study group that's forming in my closed Facebook group. And you can join it. It's a study group for Perfectly Hidden Depression. We've already set the dates. It's going to be the last Wednesday and Sunday of the next three months at specific times. So you can join the group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. That's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work to be a part of the study group. I'd love to have you. Thank you for being here. As always, I'm very grateful. Please take care of yourself, of your loved ones, and of your community. Our world is going through some very, very difficult times right now, and the more we can be there for each other with compassion and an attempt at understanding rather than judgment is something that will benefit us all. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.